0: Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book but also the podcasts stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. A quick reminder right now that you can learn more about this podcast and this project by going to www.internethistorypodcast.com. Also, you can follow the show on Twitter at NetHistoryPod, or you can always follow me on Twitter at BrianMCC. This is part one of chapter two of our internet history project, and in chapter two, we're going to be taking a look back at Microsoft. Now, when I started this project, to be quite honest, I didn't think that I would have to spend much time on Microsoft. No offense to any Microsofties out there listening, but over the last decade or so of the internet era, Microsoft simply hasn't been as relevant as some of the other players. But as I began my research into the first decade of the Internet era, I was quite surprised by how often and how much Microsoft kept coming up in various startup stories. Quite simply, everyone in the 1990s made strategic decisions based on what Microsoft was or was not doing. And so I realized that it would be impossible to tell this part of the story without looking first at Microsoft's role in it. So, in this chapter, we're going to take a step back and look at Microsoft at the dawn of the internet era. We already saw in the previous chapter how Netscape predicated its entire business model upon creating a software market where Microsoft wasn't, and while Microsoft wasn't looking. And so, let's take a look now at why, exactly, this was. These days, it's almost impossible to imagine how completely and totally Microsoft dominated the computer industry at the dawn of the Internet era. At the time of this recording, Microsoft feels to a lot of people as sort of a wounded dinosaur, struggling for relevancy, if not profits. But in 1993, 1994, 1995, they sat astride the computer industry, and especially the software industry, like a colossus. When Bill Gates started Microsoft back in 1975, the very idea of a software industry barely existed. In the era of mainframes, where a quote unquote computer could take up an entire room, the software, the stuff that made the computer work, was sort of an afterthought. Most software programs and languages were proprietary, and the makers of the hardware, that big box of chips and circuits, also developed the code that made the thing run. Software was not considered the important value proposition of a computer. The hardware was. But Bill Gates thought differently. He loved software. The hardware, the machines, didn't interest him as much. It was the programs and code that made the machines run that really turned him on. He started Microsoft in 1975 as a software company exclusively. Gates saw, before anyone else, that software was the real value in the coming PC era. As he explained to the Wall Street Journal, Gates' fundamental insight when founding Microsoft was that, quote, as hardware gets cheap, software gets valuable. Software is the bottleneck. Computer software will always be in shortage because what people want to do with computers is always increasing. End quote. Microsoft was founded right at the dawn of the microcomputer industry. Apple, Tandy, Commodore, and Dozens of other startup companies were chasing the crazy idea that a computer didn't have to be as big as a room. Computers could be so micro as to become personal machines. They could become personal computers. Bill Gates believed in that crazy idea. He believed, when almost no one else did, that someday every office and every home would contain a computer. Gates had a vision for a computer ecosystem of billions of machines, and all he really wanted was for every one of those machines to have a piece of his software on them. That was his overriding vision and life's ambition. He just wanted his software on every personal computer that sold. Microsoft's corporate motto was famously, a computer on every desk and in every home. That was the official motto, at least. Early employees say that the original motto, before the lawyers advised Microsoft to tone it down a bit, was, quote, a computer on every desk and in every home running Microsoft software, end quote. There are still further rumors that the earliest version of the motto was a computer on every desk and in every home running Microsoft software exclusively. Bill Gates' great ambition was for total domination of the computer industry via software. If world domination came as a result of this, so be it. Microsoft accumulated the power it did because it controlled the basic platform of computing, the operating system. This has been told many times before, but it's worth pointing out again that Microsoft did not actually start out to make operating systems. They made languages. They made BASIC and COBOL and FORTRAN and all of the various flavors of computer languages that allowed early PC users to write programs on the new machines. And Microsoft sold to everybody. They sold to Altair, the first personal computer manufacturer. They sold to Tandy and National Cash Register and NEC and almost every one of the other dozens of companies that pioneered the PC industry. If you produced a personal computer in the late 1970s and early 1980s, Microsoft was your software vendor of choice. Microsoft simply did not discriminate. In fact, all the way into the late 1980s, Microsoft was far and away the largest developer of software for Apple and Macintosh computers. Bill Gates stumbled into making operating systems almost by accident. In fact, the opportunity was gifted to him. In 1981, when IBM, the great computer manufacturer of the 20th century, decided, belatedly, To get into the personal computer market for the first time, it found itself way behind in a quickly evolving marketplace. And so in order to catch up, IBM broke with its own long-standing tradition. Instead of designing all of the new IBM PC in-house with proprietary hardware and software, IBM decided that it would save time by developing its machine using open architecture. This was IBM speak for electing to use off-the-shelf components from an array of outside vendors. These off-the-shelf components included the software. And so IBM naturally turned to the dominant software company of the day, Microsoft. IBM initially wanted Microsoft to develop a version of BASIC, the computer language BASIC, for the IBM PC, but IBM was also in the market for an operating system, uh, that basic software foundation of the computer. But Microsoft didn't have an operating system at the time, and actually had never developed one before. So Microsoft went out and bought one. For $50,000, Microsoft bought an operating system called 86DOS, The name would be changed to PC-DOS, and so PC-DOS was the operating system that the IBM PC launched with. By the way, DOS stands for Disk Operating System, just an FYI. So the IBM PC debuted in August 1981 and soon became the most popular personal computer in the world. And here's where luck really gifted Bill Gates' fortune. The IBM PC became so popular so rapidly, trading on the IBM brand and the trust that brand engineered in the minds of business buyers that the IBM PC became the de facto standard in the marketplace. It was the personal computer against which other personal computers were measured. But Because of the IBM PC's open architecture, it was also a computer that other manufacturers could easily copy. It was a relatively simple process to go out and buy some of the same off-the-shelf components that IBM used and make a clone of the IBM computer. The only tricky part was to come up with one of your own versions of BIOS, the one bit of software that IBM had developed in-house and kept proprietary. The way around this was to reverse-engineer IBM BIOS without actually infringing on IBM's code. Companies like Compaq Computer and dozens of others did this reverse-engineering and were thus able to produce similar or even higher-quality machines using the same off-the-shelf parts that IBM did the clones could then sell their versions of a PC at a cheaper price. So Microsoft is thrilled with these events. Keeping with his strategy of selling to everyone, Bill Gates can now commission versions of DOS for every new PC manufacturer that creates a clone. Soon that even wasn't good enough. Consumers didn't want PCs that were kind of like the IBM PC. They wanted clones that were exactly like the PC, i.e., could run every single software program that the IBM PC could run. The clone machines needed to be, uh, to borrow a phrase from the time, a hundred percent PC compatible, and run identically to the gold standard IBM machines. Well, this was no problem for Bill Gates either. Microsoft, after all, supplied IBM with PC DOS, and funnily enough. Microsoft's contract with IBM didn't forbid it from selling PC-DOS-like software to others. So Microsoft was happy to supply each of the clones with versions of DOS that were nearly identical to PC-DOS. And they did so in massive numbers. This software, the key to a successful clone, was called MS-DOS. In no time, the hundreds of different PC clone models that flooded the market under dozens of different brand names all had one thing in common, MS-DOS. As the PC became the standard personal computing paradigm, DOS also became the standard operating system. And DOS, whether it be PC-DOS or MS-DOS, was nearly identical The names were semantic. What really mattered was DOS, and DOS was owned by Microsoft. Without knowing it, the entire PC ecosystem was suddenly locked into one single operating system, one platform controlled by Bill Gates. IBM and the other PC manufacturers would spend the better part of the 1980s bitterly competing with each other on price, on specs, on brand, fighting over the small slivers of slowly eroding profit margins as the PC itself became a commodity. In the background, there was Microsoft, happily watching its erstwhile partners duke it out, supplying the ammunition to all sides, and quietly pocketing the licensing fees for DOS as the price for doing so. Software became what mattered just as Bill Gates had always envisioned. The hardware was interchangeable. Who cared what logo was on the box or even what color the box was, so long as that box could run all the same programs and apps as every other box out there. And DOS, the operating system, was the key to all of this. Bill Gates had captured the entire value proposition of the personal computer industry by transferring all of the value to the software side of the equation. He had taken over the PC industry from the inside out, with no greater strategic insight other than wanting his software on every machine sold. The culmination of this industry coup was happening right at the moment when Mosaic and Netscape were hitting the web. By the early to mid-90s, Microsoft software was on 90% of the computers sold around the world. DOS and its graphical interface-based descendant, Windows, constituted the operating system platform that the entire software and computer industry was built upon. Flush with his newfound dominance, Gates turned Microsoft's attention towards other software niches, the software markets that his DOS Windows platform made possible. And one by one, Microsoft made versions of software products that others had pioneered in these niches. In most cases, Microsoft did not enter these markets with the best, or even the second-best products, but they always came to market with products that were good enough, and then slowly but surely they leveraged their operating system dominance to overtake the competition. Microsoft Word, for example... Was not originally the dominant word processor. At one time, WordPerfect was. Microsoft Excel was for a long time the also ran of spreadsheets behind VisiCalc, Lotus123, and many others. And Windows was certainly not the first graphical user interface operating system. And it probably wasn't even until Windows 95 that one could reasonably claim that Windows was even in the same ballpark as the Macintosh OS. But in each of these cases, Microsoft entered a market pioneered by others and came to market domination eventually by methodically iterating and slowly muscling out the competition. There were a lot of ways that Microsoft could crush you if you were competition. So, for fun, let's list some of them. First of all, they could lower the price of their software. After all, they had their operating system monopoly which was a cash cow that they could fall back on. This allowed Microsoft to subsidize losses on new products almost into eternity in order to claim market share. As a competitor, you might be making all your money on your word processing software, but Microsoft made its money elsewhere so they could afford to squeeze you on word processor prices until you went bankrupt or just went away. Here's another thing they could do. Since Microsoft owned the operating system that your competing product had to work on top of, funny things might happen. Microsoft software might mysteriously run better on DOS or Windows than, say, your competing software. Or Microsoft might be slow to help you adapt your software to a newer version of, say, Windows. Or let's imagine that you're a competitor with a brand new feature that differentiated you from a Microsoft product. Microsoft might, I don't know, one day just suddenly hold a press conference and announce that the next version of their software would contain that very same feature, immediately freezing your sales. Or let's suppose you're a competitor doing something that's truly new and and groundbreaking something that Microsoft might not be able to develop on its own. Well, in that case, maybe Microsoft offers to buy you out. Then, during the due diligence process and preparation for the sale, Microsoft would naturally ask to look at the books and maybe the source code for your product. But then once they did so, the potential sale would suddenly and mysteriously be called off. Just as mysteriously, or coincidentally, I suppose, a few months later, Microsoft would probably announce a product of their own that suspiciously looked just like the one that they had once offered to buy from you. In addition to all this, Microsoft was not above leveraging the ubiquity of their operating system monopoly. In a practice called product-tying, computer manufacturers were strongly encouraged to bundle adjacent Microsoft products along with the operating system. Want a license for Windows? Well, why don't we give you Word and Excel at a great discount? You're going to need to ship a word processor and a spreadsheet with your computers anyway. Why not ship ours? We'll give them to you cheap if you just buy Windows. And finally... Microsoft was notorious for forcing onerous contracts on their partners. The most infamous practice was the licensing contracts called per-processor or per-system agreements. These were agreements that Microsoft forced computer manufacturers to sign if they wanted to use Windows or DOS. They stipulated in essence that a manufacturer would have to pay Microsoft for every machine it sold, whether or not it actually sold with a Microsoft operating system on it. Microsoft was basically saying, do you want to offer DOS or Windows to any of your users? Then you're going to have to pay us X number of dollars for every machine you sell to users. It doesn't matter if you use our OS or not, you're going to pay us either way. So a manufacturer would, theoretically at least, still be free to offer non-Microsoft operating systems, but the reality was, since they were locked into these per-system-per-processor agreements, the manufacturers had to pay Microsoft anyway. So what was the incentive to go with any other operating system? They ended up paying Microsoft even if they shipped a machine with no Microsoft software on it at all. It sounds ridiculous. And in fact, it sounded so ridiculous to the United States government that it eventually led to an antitrust lawsuit, but that's for another chapter, of course. Stories like these were not just hoary legends passed down like scary bedtime stories to young entrepreneurs. They were real. These examples, and dozens more like them, were why Netscape feared Microsoft from day one. Clearly, Microsoft wanted a piece of every software market imaginable, and they weren't afraid to break your knees to get that piece. After all, what was the internet but the largest potential software market the world would ever see? Once Bill Gates realized the potential of the internet, he would surely want Microsoft to dominate it like every other software market he coveted. Netscape would surely end up like, Borland or Novell or Lotus or Micrographics or the Go Corp. All of them once mighty companies who had gone toe to toe with Microsoft in some software market or another, only to be crushed under the boot of the Beast of Redmond, as Microsoft was known. And that brings us back to the central question that we're asking in this chapter Did Bill Gates really not see the potential of the Internet? at least as quickly as Mark Andreessen and Jim Clark had seen it. Over the years, I feel like it's become something of accepted wisdom that Microsoft somehow missed the Internet, or at least got it a bit too late. A lot of people believe that the reason Microsoft is not the dominant company it was in the mid-1990s anymore is because it has never successfully transitioned itself into the Internet era. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I think what actually happened is a bit more complicated. And so let's go into some of my reasoning on this. To begin with, let's play devil's advocate and um, take the assumption that Bill Gates missed the Internet. If he did so there were certainly good reasons for him to have been distracted. As we've said, the early 1990s was the period when Microsoft was just hitting its peak and was still in the process of consolidating its power. The various software wars that Microsoft had fought with companies like Lotus, Corel, and others were coming to an end, and the Microsoft Office suite that we know today would come to stand alone, the final colossus among the various niches that used to represent productivity software. Microsoft Office became a monopolistic platform, almost as complete and almost as profitable as the operating system platform. Office also represents the culmination of all of the competitive battles Microsoft finally besting every other software opponent that it faced in the late 80s and early 90s. But other battles were coming to an end as well. For example, the federal government blocked Microsoft's long-attempted takeover of Intuit, leaving the financial software niche as the only major software market that Microsoft never conquered. In addition to this, The bitter four year long lawsuit brought against Microsoft by Apple was winding down as well, and largely in Microsoft's favor. And Microsoft's long, often rocky marriage to IBM came to an end when, in 1992, Microsoft announced that it would stop working on OS2, the next generation operating system it had developed in partnership with Big Blue. In January 1993, Microsoft, for the first time, surpassed IBM in total stock market value. The torch had been passed in the computer industry definitively into Microsoft's hands. I think this is important to Mark because OS2 represented the final remaining challenger to Microsoft's domination of the entire software industry. Once OS2 went down in flames... It became clear that Microsoft was definitively the king of the hill. No one else could even come close. The point I'm trying to make here is that at the dawn of the internet era, it's not that Bill Gates was resting on his laurels. Quite to the contrary, he was still busy wrapping up the battles that had taken him to the top of the heap, and he was busy consolidating his power. In short, he had won. To an observer of the technology industry in 1994, there was simply no other way to look at it. And there were other distractions as well, some public and some private. In 1991, the Federal Trade Commission opened an investigation into Microsoft's business practices, looking into some of the strong-arm business tactics that we've described previously. The investigation boiled down to whether or not Microsoft was abusing its PC operating system monopoly to unfairly stifle competitors. The FTC ultimately deadlocked on the issue, and after a 2-2 vote in 1993, closed its investigation. But the newly elected Clinton administration took up the issue again, and in August of 1993, a fresh investigation was opened, this time by the Justice Department. Many months of intense legal wrangling followed, with old Microsoft foes like Novell and Borland eagerly offering evidence in the hopes that the government would punish Microsoft in some way. Most hoped that Microsoft would be broken up into separate companies like Standard Oil and AT&T had been. If possible, Gates and Microsoft fought this new battle harder than any of the battles they had ever waged against competitors. Microsoft was, for the first time, fighting for its life against an adversary it could not overwhelm, Uncle Sam. In July 1994, Microsoft and the Justice Department reached a settlement out of court. Microsoft agreed to stop charging computer manufacturers a per-processor license fee. Product tying was strictly forbidden as well. No more charging manufacturers for every machine, whether they shipped DOS or not. At the time, the settlement was largely seen as a slap on the wrist, at least within the tech industry. A lawyer at the time said that the settlement, quote, Simply proposes to shut the barn door now that the horse has already gone. End quote. Dawson Windows already had dominant market share and would likely continue to do so since consumers would demand it. But the settlement did include one important clause Microsoft would be bound by the terms of a consent decree for six and a half years starting in August of 1995. During this time period, Microsoft agreed to formal monitoring by the Justice Department. If the feds decided any further bad behavior had taken place, then more stringent legal steps would be required. So the upside was, Microsoft survived relatively unscathed. Practices that had helped them reach their dominant position were now verboten, but the status of that dominance remained unchanged. There would be no breakup of the company. But the government would continue to monitor Microsoft's behavior closely. Indeed, the day the final agreement was announced, a Justice Department attorney said that investigations even then were ongoing, looking into, quote, certain Microsoft practices to determine whether those practices are in compliance, end quote, with the newly minted consent decree. And on a private level... Bill Gates had other very important events on his agenda. On January 1st, 1994, at the age of 38, the enfant terrible of the software industry married 29-year-old Melinda French, a Microsoft product manager. The wedding took place on the Hawaiian resort island of Lanai, the ultra-exclusive, mostly private preserve fictionalized in the movie The Descendants. Billionaire friends of Gates attended in secret, attempting to minimize media attention. Every room at the exclusive Manila Bay Hotel was bought by Gates, and every helicopter service in Maui was booked in an attempt to ward off paparazzi. The guest list included A-list celebrities such as Richard Gere, Oprah Winfrey, and Kevin Costner. The wedding itself took place outdoors on a bluff overlooking the Pacific Ocean, and the whole event cost a rumored $1 million. Gates's trusted Microsoft lieutenant, Steve Ballmer, was the best man. For years, Microsoft's competitors had publicly prayed for the day when young bachelor Gates finally settled down and started a family, hoping that domestic bliss would cool Gates's competitive fire. Now, perhaps, they were getting their wish. But even taking into account all of these distractions, it's still a bit unfair to say that Bill Gates missed the Internet. The reason I say this is because if you had asked Gates in 1994 if Microsoft was prepared for the next wave of computing, for something networked and interactive, for something, in short, like what the internet became, he would have said, absolutely. But he wouldn't have used the term internet to describe what he saw as the future of interactive computing. He might have mentioned a personal favorite acronym, IAYF, which stood for information at your fingertips, or used a more common term like information superhighway to describe the future. And as far as Gates was concerned, Microsoft had that locked up. If you were alive in the early 1990s, chances are you remember the term information superhighway. It was bandied about in all corners of the media. It was a prominent topic for debate during the 1992 presidential election. It was the Jetsons-like futuristic media technology that many people were convinced would change the world. And you could be forgiven for assuming that the information superhighway is the internet, or at least the internet is what the information superhighway became, but this is wrong. The information superhighway was the fever dream of the telecom industry and the cable industry and the computer industry, and even Hollywood. The idea was that we'd all be linked together via a Frankenstein-like combination of the television and the PC. We'd be able to shop from home, and exchange video chats with each other, and rent movies on demand, and receive personalized news and media based on our personal interests. I know, it sounds exactly like the internet. but All of this was supposed to happen not on computers, but on your television. The 1980s had seen a great wave of corporate mergers and conglomerations that had transformed the American corporate landscape. In addition, a decade of deregulation meant that the playing field had been scrambled, By the 1990s, there were now just a handful of key players who controlled media and telecommunications, and these few companies were all eager to use the newish technology of the computer revolution to take their industries to the next level. The PC revolution had shown that the average American was comfortable bringing technology into their homes. The compact disc had shown that digital was a viable delivery method for media content. High-definition and flat-screen technology were both on the horizon. Video rental stores and home theater systems had proven that home entertainment was a viable thing. Video game companies, like Nintendo, were revitalizing the concept of home gaming. Even things like QVC and the Home Shopping Network had shown that Americans were perfectly willing to shop and make purchases in their pajamas. Then there were fax machines and answering machines which had taught people that even the dowdy old telephone could evolve in new ways. And there were many who were sure that the long-promised dream of video calling was just around the corner. For people who paid attention to these things, all of this technological evolution was leading inexorably to one unifying machine that would combine all of these innovations. To them, that machine was logically the television, albeit a television made smarter thanks to PC technology and interconnected via wires provided by some combination of wireless, cable, telephone, or satellite technology. Many smart people estimated that the value of the information superhighway, as envisioned, was a market worth at least a trillion dollars. TVs were going to become interactive. The smart guys and the money guys were all sure of it. If you'll remember, when he left Silicon Graphics, Jim Clark originally thought he was going to start an interactive television company with either TCI or Nintendo. It was Clark's 1991 paper, The Telecomputer, which envisioned a, quote, high-speed computer system for serving audio and movies on demand Virtual reality games, digital forms of daily newspapers, weekly and monthly magazines, libraries, encyclopedias, and interactive books. The colossus of the cable industry, John Malone, announced a future of 500 channels, shopping, and movies on demand. Media titans like Time Warner's Gerald Levin predicted, quote, once you digitize the material, then the consumer can summon the material at will. It's profound. Not the technology, but the psychology. End quote. Raymond Smith was the CEO of Bell South, and he opined quote, The three principal consumer communication devices, computer, TV, and telephone, are margining into one. And as they do so, so too are the distinctions among once separate businesses, End quote. On September 15th, 1993, the New York Times declared that the Clinton administration was finalizing plans to facilitate a nationwide information superhighway, financed and led by private industry. On April 12th, 1993, a special issue of Time magazine headlined, The Info Highway, Bringing a Revolution in Entertainment, News, and Communication. The introduction to the article basically summed up a vision of the future as the Infobon enthusiasts imagined it. This is a long quote, but starting now. Quote, Everybody knows what the television is for. It rings. You pick it up. A voice travels down a wire and gets routed and switched right to your ear. Everybody knows what to do with the television. You turn it on, choose a channel, and let advertising, news, and entertainment flow into your home. Now, imagine a medium that combines the switching and routing capabilities of phones with the video and information offerings of the most advanced cable systems and data banks. Instead of settling for whatever happens to be on at a particular time, you could select any item from an encyclopedic menu of offerings and have it routed directly to your television set or computer screen. A movie? Airline listings? Tomorrow's newspaper or yesterday's episode of Northern Exposure? How about a new magazine or book? A stroll through the L.L. Bean catalog? A teleconference with your boss? A video phone call with your lover? Just punch up what you want, and it appears when you want it. Welcome to the Information Superhighway. It's not here yet, but it's arriving sooner than you might think. Already, the major cable operators and telephone companies are competing and collaborating to bring the communicopia to your neighborhood, while the Clinton administration is scrambling to see how the government can join in the fun." Why was television going to be the medium that delivered the interactivity to the mainstream? When Ray Smith of Bell South was asked this by Wired Magazine, he replied simply, quote, because that's where the people are, End quote. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe, now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. Entertainment was the key, not nerdy computers. Again, Ray Smith, quote, You've got to start with entertainment. Entertainment on demand, time-shifted sports, and time-shifted news, end quote. He simply could not envision that computer networks would be able to deliver this anytime soon. And even if they could, quote, You're not going to watch television on a little monitor. You're going to watch it on a big set. That's what you'll use when you want entertainment, and you'll use the PC and keyboard when text is more important. End quote. And Bill Gates actually shared this fever dream. Sure, he came from the world of computers, but computer networking was complicated. It was low bandwidth, and it was not at all mainstream. Television was decidedly mainstream, and technologically sophisticated and high bandwidth to boot. Additionally, Gates saw little chance for profit in computer networking. Instead, Gates saw opportunity for huge profits— by duplicating his platform strategy in a new arena. After all, he had successfully put Microsoft software on the computers that now sat on every desk. Going forward, he imagined that he could put Microsoft software in everyone's living room as well. In a way, it was the logical next step on his quest for software world domination. He didn't care who came out on top in the mad scramble to deliver this golden future. Cable, telephone, satellite, or other. These new smart TVs or smart cable boxes, whatever shape or configuration they might have, they would need software to make the new technology work. Obviously, it would be Microsoft software that would make everything work. Gates shared the vision of an interactive world. His favorite term for it was information at your fingertips, IAYF. In industry circles, Gates began to evangelize IAYF as the future of all these overlapping industries. And he agreed that the living room was the logical place for this to happen. After all, that's where the eyeballs were and that's where the existing infrastructure was. Throughout the early 90s, Gates took meetings with all and sundry. He met with the most powerful man in Hollywood, super agent Mike Ovitz. He met with John Malone of the nation's largest cable company, TCI. He met with Gerald Levin of Time Warner, print media powerhouse and cable company owner as well. There were tentative discussions between all three men about a rumored super partnership called Cablesoft, where all three companies would team up to bring the information superhighway to reality. Gates also met with Barry Diller of QVC, with Rupert Murdoch of Fox, and with Lou Gerstner from IBM. All of this was in aid of one common goal, making sure that no matter what the telcos, cable companies, and Hollywood Studios had planned, Microsoft software would be a part of it. And boy, did they all try to make the information superhighway come alive. In Orlando, Florida in 1994, Time Warner's cable division launched an interactive television test in 4,000 homes called the Full Service Network. AT&T and Viacom announced an interactive TV pilot in Castro Valley, California. Bell Atlantic, the Baby Bell telephone company, built a $200 million digital factory in Reston, Virginia to test a service called Stargazer that would deliver interactive programming. Another Bell company, GTE, held interactive tests based in Cerritos, California. Bell company, SBC, tested in Richardson, Texas. Still another Bell, Bell South, attempted to merge with the cable giant TCI to create a mega company that might do battle with the rumored CableSoft. And yet another Baby Bell, US West, partnered with the computer company DEC and an animation company called 3DO to attempt an interactive TV project in Omaha, Nebraska. In all, hundreds of millions of dollars were poured into interactive television initiatives. The biggest project and the one to get the most attention was Time Warner's full-service network in Orlando, launched in January 1995. It was made possible via hardware from Jim Clark's Silicon Graphics. It had movies on demand, interactive video games, print content from Time Warner's stable of magazines, and a virtual shopping mall where couch potatoes could order items from Sharper Image, Crate and Barrel, the U.S. Postal Service, a Dodge dealership, and even a local supermarket. Gerald Levin of Time Warner declared, quote, I challenge anybody to say that video on demand isn't what the consumer wants, end quote. Well, it turns out he could have just asked the consumer, because they didn't really seem to want it. One by one, all of the interactive TV experiments failed. The GTE test in El Cerrito, California, was destined for 7,300 households. Only 350 ever signed on. The best-selling item in the vaunted full-service network virtual mall was actually postage stamps. All of that money and all of that effort would come crashing to a halt once the players involved realized that the future they thought they were building had already arrived, and instead of being called the information superhighway, it was called the Internet and the World Wide Web. And instead of requiring hundreds of millions of dollars in investment, it was free, and it was already happening. The biggest reason, in short, that Bill Gates missed the internet, if we can say that he missed it at all, was not that his vision was wrong. Gates, like everyone else, got that interactivity and networking and smart technology like IAYF was the future of computing. But Gates thought that he was going to bring that to the world, along with his buddies in cable and telecom, and in a pre-packaged, pre-designed way, controlled by him. Gates, like Malone and Levin and Diller and everybody else, didn't anticipate that everything the information superhighway hoped to be would bubble up from somewhere else, and from their perspective seemingly from nowhere, enabled by a technology, the internet, that was controlled by no one. Part of this miscalculation was just the myopia of big business, and especially big media that, as we'll see over and over again in this project, was so seemingly common in the internet era. Gatekeepers of media like the newspaper, television, and especially music industries simply could not believe that the competitive moats around their decades- and centuries-old industries could be subverted by messy, nerdy technology that was basically brand new. And in my opinion, part of this, frankly, was a generational bias. Bill Gates, born 1955, like Diller, born 1942, Jerry Levin, born 1939, and John Malone, 1941, And all the rest were baby boomers, or near boomers. They were the children of the television era, in short, and they had come of age when television was king. For them, it was taken for granted that television was the non of mainstream technology, the cultural force that united all of late 20th century society. The computer had made interesting inroads into the average American's life, but it was still a somewhat marginal, geeky technology better suited for doing work or business. If you wanted to truly reach the vast, unwashed couch potatoes, the Joe and Jane six-packs of America, it was thought that the easiest thing to do was make the TV more like the computer. No one imagined that the computer by itself could compete with television for the hearts and minds of everyday Americans. And it's certainly not that Bill Gates was unfamiliar with Internet technologies in general. Like any good computer hacker worth his salt, he had used the Internet in the 1970s and 80s quite a bit. In fact, when Gates developed Microsoft's first-ever software product, a version of the computer language BASIC to be used on the Altair, the first-ever personal computer, he had used FTP on Harvard University's computers, to beam his work for storage on Carnegie Mellon computers. But to Gates, the internet was sort of like Unix. It was a technology for geeks like him. What average computer user could be bothered to figure something out that was arcane like FTP? And the internet was a wild, anarchic space, lacking standards and not controlled by anyone. As late as 1994, in fact, Microsoft employees were not even allowed to connect to the internet on Microsoft's corporate network for fear of hackers, viruses, and corporate spies. The internet was not for mainstream users, as far as Bill Gates was concerned. Microsoft was a company that thrived by selling carefully controlled user experiences, Microsoft had come to prominence by making computing more mainstream and user friendly. That's why Gates' vision was for the information superhighway, developed by Microsoft and its big media partners, and delivered by the mainstream's idol, the BoobTube. It would be a safe and controlled technology, palatable to mainstream users, and above all, managed in a way that Microsoft could easily profit from. And so my thesis basically is this. It's not that Bill Gates missed the internet. It's that he underestimated the internet. He did not think it was a technology that was robust enough or mainstream enough to deliver on the future of network computing and interactivity as he envisioned it. And in his heart of hearts, I don't think that Bill Gates was particularly rooting for the internet to be the future. By its very nature, the internet was something that wouldn't be easy for a large entity to have control over. And Gates has said as much many times over. For example, in 1998, Gates gave a great joint interview alongside Warren Buffett. Speaking of the internet in particular, he said, quote, Sometimes we do get taken by surprise. For example, when the internet came along, we had it as a fifth or sixth priority. It wasn't like somebody told me about it and I said, I don't know how to spell that. I said, yeah, I've got that on my list, so I'm okay. But there came a point when we realized it was happening faster and was a much deeper phenomenon than had been recognized in our strategy, end quote. What I think Bill Gates missed most crucially was how the latest iteration of the Internet, the World Wide Web, was different. It was, in fact, more user-friendly and more robust than anyone realized at the time. It could, in fact, deliver on all of the promises of the information superhighway, and it was beginning to do so whether Gates could see it or not. And it also delivered on those promises in the democratic, utopian way that so enthused early adopters of the web like Mark Andreessen. The information superhighway was interactive, sure. It let you talk back to your TV. But it didn't allow you to create your own television program. The web allowed users to consume content, but it also allowed users to create their own content. Any user anywhere, and any kind of content, and anyone could do so outside of the control of a major media corporation or gatekeepers like the cable companies or Microsoft. I think I'll sum this all up with what now is a funny little historical aside. In 1995, Bill Gates agreed to write and publish a book outlining his vision of the future of technology. Co-written by Microsoft's chief technologist and interactive TV cheerleader, by the way, Nathan Meierhold, the hardcover of the book came out in November 1995. Its title was The Road Ahead. The index of the hardcover book had 68 references to the term Information Highway, 46 references to the term Internet, and just 4 references to the World Wide Web. But about a year later, the paperback version was released, and the paperback had been heavily rewritten. Why the editorial adjustment? Well, in the meantime, the internet and the web had gone mainstream, and Gates needed to make it seem like his great vision statement of technology's future had gotten it all along. And so if you take a look at the index of the paperback version of the book, information highway now only gets 39 references, down from 68. The internet, conversely, gets 169 references, up from 46. And the web suddenly had 59 mentions, up from, if you'll remember, just four a year earlier. Here's a great quote from Netscape's Jim Clark. Quote, The internet was the information highway everyone was looking for. They just hadn't recognized it, end quote. But there were people in Microsoft who recognized it, and that's what we'll be looking at in the next episode.